Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin', brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is New York Times best-selling author Bart Ehrman. He is a distinguished professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. His newest book is Heaven and Hell: A History of the Afterlife, published by our friends at Simon and Schuster. Bart, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, it is an honor to have you here. And Bart, before we get into the specifics of your new book. I would like to ask you about these strange times we are living in, and this is a two-part question. One, how are you personally dealing with the coronavirus and the circumstances surrounding it? And two, how are you approaching the marketing of your book during this time? Uh, yes, right. Two, uh, two important questions for me. The first is important for everyone, right. <laughs> I'm afraid. Uh, I, am, I am absolutely following uh, the scientists' and government's advice. I am self-isolated. Uh, my wife and I are uh, in our home and are having uh, virtually no human contact uh, with anyone. We are, um, uh, yeah, so we're avoiding all human contact. And uh, so uh, it's just the way the way it has to be right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we um, the only time I'm going out of the house is uh, to go for a walk around the block uh, mm-hmm. on occasion, and, on rare occasion actually, and uh, to maybe go out into our yard. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of um, second question was. Right. Oh, yeah. Marketing the book. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Well, that's that's that may be important to me personally, but it isn't kind of imp- it's not important in terms of the uh, overall scheme of things, but uh, at all. But uh, in terms of marketing a book, um, I think uh, there is universal agreement that right now is the worst time to be publishing a book in the history of uh, well, certainly the 21st century, the history of my lifetime, which has gone on for 64 years. Mm-hmm. There's never been a worse time to publish a book because um, none of us, uh, well, there, there are two things involved. One is people do have more free time now to read. Most, most people who are self-isolating are, are finding that they've, uh, they have time on their hands. Uh, it, it, it's tragic uh, because people are unemployed, and uh, this is a very, very serious problem, which I, I don't need to tell anybody about. But it does mean that people have free time, and so people, in theory, could read uh, more books, and a lot of people are reading more books. The reason that it's a problem to publish a book now is that there's almost no way to get the word out that a book has been published, and the reason for that is because the only way that um, one can effectively market a book these days, um, certainly one can use social media, but that that is fairly limited in scope uh, unless you can get big-time media, either podcasts or uh, TV or radio. And the major podcast, TV and radio, simply aren't interested in new books right now. They've got other, far more important things on their hands. Uh, and so, as a result, uh, it is very hard to get a, get the word out about any book that just has come out. Uh, and mine, mine would be in that number. Right. Thank you so much, Bart. Um, I do want to take a moment to let listeners know that we are uh, doing free shipping from Quail Ridge Books. So if you are stuck at home and you would like to order Bart's book or any other book, uh, just navigate over to www.quailridgebooks.com and we'll get your books out to you ASAP. Um, Bart, 
in the introduction to your new book, Heaven and Hell, you state that the afterlife helped motivate you to become more involved in your Episcopal Church. Can you please elaborate on this notion for our listeners? Yeah, I was. Um, uh, I grew up in Lawrence, Kansas, and I was um, I was raised uh, as a Christian. My uh, parents uh, took us to the Episcopal Church, and I was active in the Episcopal Church uh, as an altar boy. And um, uh, but when I was uh, when I was 15 years old in high school, I had a uh, a born again experience, and um, from that point on, I became a very committed evangelical Christian. When I started out, you know, my early in life, I associated uh, heaven and hell with any any concept of God, and uh, I believed in heaven and hell as a as a young person. When I became an evangelical Christian, I became completely committed to the idea of heaven and hell, and um, was convinced as a born again uh, Christian that I was going to heaven, and most of the rest of the world was going to hell. <laughs> and so I think I may I think those years when I was an evangelical, I, I was rather uh, enthusiastic about this view. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I hated. I was, uh, I hated the idea of hell, but it also, uh, I, I absolutely believed it, and I think it probably made me a little bit obnoxious mm-hmm. as a uh, person to be around because I thought I had to convert everybody to my point of view because my point of view was right, and anyone who agreed with me would go to heaven, and uh, anyone who disagreed uh, would go to hell. Uh, and so, heaven and hell was a very important part of my religious upbringing. Right. Thank you, Bart. A recent Pew Research poll shows that 72% of Americans believe that there is a literal heaven where people go when they die, and 58% believe in a literal hell. Where do these beliefs come from? Do they come from the Bible? This is the, uh, the this is really the surprising thing about my book. I think uh, that people will not expect uh, is that these ideas that we have today of heaven and hell are actually not found in the Old Testament or the teaching of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seemed counterintuitive, um, but the reality is that we have a view of heaven and hell that's not biblical. In our view. Um, Heaven, uh, so in our view, a person dies and their soul goes uh, to heaven to be rewarded and or or it goes to hell to be punished. So the body dies and the soul lives on. Um, That view is not found in the Bible because um, biblical authors come from the Jewish tradition and in the Jewish tradition there is not a separation of soul and body. Um, the idea that you have a, two separate entities, that your soul is something that kind of lives inside of you, then when your body dies, your, your soul lives on. So they're separable entities, body and soul. That does come out of the Greek tradition. You can find it in ancient Greek authors such as Plato. But in ancient Hebrew authors, uh, the soul was not a distinct entity. The soul was the thing that made your body come to life, but your bo- but the soul didn't exist apart from the body. And so for ancient Hebrews, the soul was really more like your breath, uh, what we today would think of as your breath. So we, we think that when you breathe, that you know your body's alive when it breathes, and when your body dies, it stops breathing, your breath stops. But even we think that when your breath stops, it doesn't go anywhere. Um, 
because it's, it's just what animates your body. And that's what ancient Hebrews thought about the soul, that, that when you died, your soul didn't exist anymore. It's the thing that kept your body alive, and that, so it, it dissipates just like our breath does. And so in the Old Testament, there's no idea of the soul living on after death, either for heaven or hell. Um, and, and there's no, uh, and, and it's absolutely not what Jesus himself taught, who, of course, was trained and raised on the, on the Hebrew Bible. Right. Thank you, Bart. And this is kind of a broad question that you approach in a couple of different ways in your book. But when you have so many people in America specifically, but also in other parts of the world, walking around believing in a literal heaven and a literal hell, how is that shaping their day to day existence in this world that we are living in today? Right now, can you really live for today if you are constantly worried about what is going to happen to you after you die? Um, well, I think, you know, I think a lot of people do uh, still live today while they believe in heaven and hell. They try to have a good life and they try to enjoy life and, and all that. Um, and heaven, the, the idea of heaven especially has done a lot of good uh, in the world because it has provided people with hope, especially in times of despair like many people are facing now. And it explains how the world can be a just place. Uh, that, that even though it doesn't seem like it's fair uh, with the idea of heaven and hell, uh, the notion is that after death it will all be made fair, and so that's that's a comforting, uh, comforting thought. There are also um, there are also downsides to the beliefs in uh, heaven and hell. Uh, one is the one that you're suggesting, which is that if if this life now is really just a uh, kind of a dress rehearsal for what's going to happen uh, next, and that this world isn't what really matters, what really matters is the next world, that can make people complacent about what's happening in this world, and uh, less likely to try to help people who are in need, because, uh, well, God will take care of them afterwards, or being less concerned about, say, uh, what we're doing to our environment and to our climate, because, you know, this world's passing away anyway, so it doesn't really matter about climate change, or, uh, you know, so, think, so it can lead to a kind of a uh, um, complacency about life in this world. And in terms of hell, the, the teaching of hell, that, that you may well be tortured for all eternity, is a terrifying thought for people, and it can be psychologically damaging, uh, especially to, to children. Uh, uh, who are uh, who are who can be terrified, and I know a lot of adults who are terrified. And so, th those are the pluses and minuses of the beliefs of heaven and hell. But in my view, the pluses and minuses don't contribute to the question of whether the idea of heaven and hell are true or not. In other words, just because it might make people behave or it might make people provide people hope doesn't make it right. Uh, but just because it might lead to complacency doesn't make it wrong. Uh, and so my book really isn't so much about um, the effects of heaven and hell as where the ideas came from and, and you know, how, how they came into existence and, uh, and whether they originally were part of the Christian tradition or not. Right. Thanks, Barton. Let's dive into some of the specifics um, of these ideas from your book, Heaven and Hell. Your book, uh, as you mentioned, is showing us the history and development of ideas of the afterlife quite remarkably, and it opens with the discovery of a text in Egypt uh, that claimed to be written by the Apostle Peter. Can you tell us about this text and its significance? This is one of the great texts that uh, that most uh, most Christians, most everyone else, don't know about. 
even though it almost made it into the New Testament. Into the fourth century, there were church fathers who were claiming that, in fact, it was part of Scripture. Uh, but it wasn't discovered, as you said, until the 1880s. It's called the Apocalypse of Peter. And it is our first Christian account of somebody being given a guided tour of heaven and hell. Uh, people will be familiar with guided tours from Dante's Divine Comedy. Dante didn't make up the idea. He was standing in a long tradition of uh, Christians detailing these tours of heaven and hell. And the account in the Apocalypse of Peter is especially interesting because it has long and graphic, lurid details of torments in hell, um, but very, uh, very kind of brief and vague descriptions of heaven. And I think the reason is because uh, there's only so many ways you can describe eternal bliss because, you know, people are happy forever and they're joyful and they're, they're glad they're there and everything, but there's not much you can say about it. They're just very eternally happy. And, uh, but if you have any creative imagination at all, you can go into great detail about what's happening down in hell. And that's what he does. Uh, and one of the most interesting things about it is that people are being punished according to their characteristic sin. And so Peter, who's being given this guided tour by Jesus himself, Peter uh, sees, for example, that um, that people who have blasphemed against God uh, with their mouth, they are hanged by their tongues over eternal flames. And um, women who have braided their hair to make themselves attractive so they could seduce men into adultery are hanged by their hair over eternal flames. And they, the men that they seduced are hanged by a different body part over eternal flames. Mm -hmm. And the men cry out, we didn't know it would come to this. And so, so it goes on like this. It has, list after, it has this long list of these various sins and their punishments and and the point of the point of the story is pretty clear if you want to avoid the torments of hell and you want the glories of heaven then don't sin and um and so anyway so th as i said this book almost made it into the new testament um and uh it is our earliest description of what actually is happening in the two places right thank you bart listeners we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor and then i will be right back with bart ehrman the Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Bart Ehrman, author of Heaven and Hell, A History of the Afterlife, published by our friends at Simon & Schuster. Bart, um, now that we're back from the break, a reminder, listeners, did the founder of Christianity believe that after death a soul would go to heaven or hell? And how did this become the standard Christian view? So my, um, what I argue in the book is, is, it's actually not, you know, my idea, this has been around for a while, is that Jesus, um, 
Jesus had a different view of what was going to happen at the end of life from the view that, that most Christians have uh, today. Jesus, of course, was Jewish, and he was living in a time when, in Judaism, the prominent view was a view that was called, uh, well, we call it today, they didn't call it this, but we call it apocalypticism. Uh, the apocalyptic view maintained that this world has so much pain and suffering in it because there are forces of evil that are controlling things that are making people suffer. Um, people are not suffering because God's punishing them for doing something wrong. They're suffering because God's enemies, for example, the devil and the demons and forces of evil, uh, they're the ones causing things like pandemics uh, or wars or droughts or, or whatever. But in this view, this, this Jewish view, um, God was soon going to intervene in the world to destroy these forces of evil and set, and he's, he's going to bring the world back to the paradise that it was originally designed to be. In the beginning, God created uh, the Garden of Eden. That's where people were supposed to live. They blew it. They, uh, and they, they got kicked out of paradise. But God is, uh, is going to return the world to paradise. And um, people will enter into this paradise. And just like the original paradise, it's here on earth. Um, because that was the original design. So, um, the idea was, though, that not only those who happened to be living at the time would be brought into this paradise, but everybody who had ever lived would be rewarded if they had been on God's side. And so God could actually raise people from the dead and breathe the soul back into them. He'd breathe life back into those who were dead. And so Jewish apocalypticists thought that at the end of time, when God set up his kingdom here on earth, that you could call the kingdom of God, it's God's kingdom here on earth in paradise, that he will bring bodies back to life and they will enter into eternity. This is exactly what Jesus teaches in our earliest gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that the kingdom of God is coming soon. He's not referring to heaven, a place that your soul, you die and your soul goes to, up in heaven above. He's talking about God's kingdom here on earth, just as other Jews in his day. That, that's how Jews would have understood him. Uh, that's, that's what they, they thought, is that the earth, the earth was going to be revived and people would come into it. Jesus also taught that people who were not on God's side would be raised from the dead and they would realize the error of their ways and they'd be annihilated. Mm. So Jesus did not believe that there's eternal torture for souls. He thought that there's either an entrance into the kingdom of God, into paradise, or there is destruction. Those are the two choices. Uh, and so that, that was the original Christian teaching. Um, that was the view that uh, Jesus' followers had, is the view that the Apostle Paul had, and it only, uh, it only changed later. Right. Um, I'm happy to tell you how it changed later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you'd like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, um, Bart. And let's um, actually talk about how the idea of the afterlife was partially driven um, by the fear of death. Or we have been talking about that, but death is not something that is to be feared according to the ancient philosophers. And specifically, I'm speaking of Plato and his teacher Socrates. Can you tell us why Plato and uh, Socrates believe that death was not something to be feared? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, Socrates, so Plato is often thought of as the greatest philosopher in Western civilization, mm -hmm. and I think, I think that's probably right. Um, Socrates was his teacher. 
And uh, Plato's uh, writings are uh, usually uh, feature Socrates as the main speaker. So Plato writes about Socrates and he puts him in these situations where he has uh, discussions, dialogues, conversations with people. Hmm. Um, in one of the dialogues, uh, Socrates has been found guilty before the Athenian court of uh, breaking their, their laws and uh, because he's been such a troublemaker by his, by his philosophy. Um, he stirred up so many problems that they condemn him to death. Mm. And on his death, on the day that he's supposed to drink the hemlock, he spends the day talking with his disciples about uh, what they can expect about death. And and he comes down to saying that death, that he's not at all afraid of dying, uh, that in fact, uh, he, he's sure that it's going to be a good thing, um, and he's not, but he's not sure which it's going to be. It's one of two things, he says. Either... Um, death is going to be, uh, we cease uh, living in the body, but we continue on living and we'll be associating with uh, all of the uh, people who went before us, which for Socrates is great because it means that his, his love for conversation and dialogue is going to go on for eternity and he's going to be able to talk to the greats of the Greek past, such as Homer, uh, for as long as he wants, forever. And so that's great. The other option he says, is that we don't live on, in which case, death will be like a deep, dreamless sleep. Um, everybody likes a deep, dreamless sleep. <laughs> we, we love it when we get one of those. And this will be one that goes on forever. Absolutely nothing to be afraid of. Uh, there'll be n nothing bad at all about it. It'll be just like a deep sleep. And so Socrates says, it's one of those two things. So there's something good that could come out of it, but there's nothing bad. Right. Thanks, Bart. And some other ancient philosophers found the idea of an afterlife to be quite disturbing and even somewhat disruptive. I'm specifically referring to Epicurus and Lucretius. Uh, can you tell us about the nature of their thoughts towards the afterlife and why they found a focus on the afterlife to be so disturbing? They thought the focus on the afterlife was disturbing because they thought that if people are uh, worried about what's going to happen to them when they die, that it's absolutely pointless and needless and it's it's creating internal emotional turmoil that's that's unnecessary. These two philosophers, Epicurus and Lucretius, who was his later follower, um, they disagreed with Plato. Um, Plato, uh, Plato himself seemed to, so I'm not talking about Socrates now, I'm talking about Plato himself. Mm. Plato um, does put forth in his writings uh, a couple of uh, myths that suggest that people will be rewarded or punished when they die. So if you're good, you'll be rewarded. If you're, if you're wicked, you'll be punished. Lucretius, uh, Epicurus and Lucretius both thought that that was wrong. They, unlike Plato, did not think the soul lived on after you died. They thought that, um, that the body and the soul were together and they died together. And just as the soul cannot exist for them apart from the body, uh, I'm sorry, just as the body cannot exist apart from the soul, the soul cannot exist apart from the body. Mm -hmm. And so they believed that when you die, that's it. You just simply cease to exist. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they didn't think that this was a problem, though. Um, Lucretius says, for example, that um, he was not at all concerned or worried or upset by anything that happened before he was born. Mm -hmm. Because he didn't, 
he didn't know about it and he, he didn't exist then so it didn't bother him he said so if I wasn't bothered by anything before I was born I won't be bothered by anything after I'm dead mm-hmm. um, and so uh, and I think you know that there's a lot of logic to that I mean none of us was disturbed during the middle ages when the black plague hit uh, we weren't there then mm-hmm. and so we won't be disturbed by anything after we're dead and that, that, that so that was their view right thank you Bart um, prior to Plato, there was Homer, um, and in Homer's great tales, Odysseus visits the underworld and encounters the dead. How did the tales of Homer influence current ideas about the afterlife? Right, so our first uh, our first major author in uh, the Western tradition is Homer and his Iliad and his Odyssey. Um, the Odyssey, the Iliad is about the, the Trojan War. It's a slice, uh, a, a slice of uh, a very tiny little bit of the uh, war, the Trojan War, the ten-year war of the Greeks against Troy uh, that was being fought over the honor of Helen, the greatest, uh, the, the most beautiful woman ever to have lived. Mm-hmm. Um, the Odyssey is about the return home of the one of the war, the Greek warriors in the war after they destroyed Troy after the ten-year war, Odysseus. Uh, and en route home, he has trouble getting home, and it takes him 10 years to get home because he's faced with one disaster after the other caused by the gods. And um, en route, he's instructed that he needs to get some advice from a um, from a prophet who had lived before, Tiresias. Uh, he needs to go down and consult with Tiresias, the dead prophet. And so he goes into the underworld. And so this is the first instance in Western tradition of somebody going down into the underworld to see what it's like. And in uh, in Homer's version, um, everybody goes to Hades. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're good or bad, if you're a sinner or if you're a saint. It doesn't matter if you're a, 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 a hero or a coward, whatever. Everybody goes to the same place. Nobody has a physical existence down there. The, the things that exist down there are shadows. Uh, so your shadow, which literally, it's like if you stand in the sun and you see your shadow, your shadow, it looks like you, I mean, in a sense, but like it has no form, no force, no vitality, no life, no joy, no nothing. And that's what it's like down in Hades uh, for Homer. It's just an unpleasant, shadowy existence where nobody has anything to live for and they're pretty much just kind of bored for all eternity. Um, yeah, so that that's the oldest view. <laughs> that, that, that was the view that was around before there was an idea of heaven and hell. Right, thank you, Bart. And finally, um, I want to ask you about the influence of another uh, story, another great work of literature, and to circle back to the Christian tradition and the Catholic tradition, and that work is Dante's Divine Comedy. Um, can you tell us of the influence of the Divine Comedy and uh, the Inferno, the Purgatorio, and Paradiso on ideas of the afterlife? Yeah, so th- this will take a second to set up, because I had just said a while ago that Jesus believed in a future resurrection of the body, and he didn't believe that the soul would go to heaven or hell. Mm-hmm. And by the time you get to Dante, a very serious uh, transition has taken place. Mm-hmm. Jesus' followers agreed with him that there's a future resurrection of the body. They didn't have any idea of a soul. Uh, when the Apostle Paul uh, became one of Jesus' followers, uh, some years after Jesus' death, Paul also taught, uh, even in the New Testament, he teaches that there's going to be a future resurrection of the dead, and he didn't teach that your soul goes to heaven or hell. Paul, like Jesus, thought that this resurrection was going to happen very soon. 
he expected to be alive when it happened. For Paul, Jesus was going to come back from heaven, the resurrection would happen, Paul would be alive at the time, and they'd enter into this paradise on earth. But Paul's ministry lasted for several decades. And as time went on, he started realizing, you know, it hasn't happened yet. And he thought it was going to happen soon. It didn't happen soon. And then near the end of his life, he started thinking, you know, I might die first. And so what's going to happen then? And Paul came to think that, you know, I am so close with Christ now that I'm just, I'm, he's like a central, I'm, he's central to my life. I've got a close relationship. Surely when I die... I'm not going to lose that relationship until the resurrection. Surely, I'm going to continue being in the presence of Christ as I am now. Paul developed the idea that somehow he would have an existence in heaven after his death before the resurrection. This then turned the tide with Christians, because Christians started saying that after you die, you you will uh, be in the presence of Christ just as you are now. And they started adopting the Greek understanding rather than the Jewish understanding of the soul. This was facilitated by the, by the fact that most of Paul's converts were Greeks. They were, they were pagans. They were Gentiles. They grew up on Greek thought. And so they were very comfortable with the idea that your soul lives on after your body dies, because that was the Greek teaching, even though the original Christian teaching was Jewish. And so you start developing the idea that the soul lives forever within Christianity, and it's either rewarded or punished forever. So uh, that was a kind of, that seemed fair to people, because, you know, if if God is in control, then surely there's some justice in the world. Surely it's fair, and if it's not fair here, it must be fair after death. And so, well, it's more fair that way. But then the more they thought about it, they realized, well, it's not really quite fair, because, you know, if you're a sinner, suppose you're, you know, you die when you're 40 years old, and you've, you know, you haven't had a, you know, you've been kind of a moderate sinner for 15 or 20 years, and, or 25, 30 years, however many years, but then you die, I mean, are you really going to be punished for 30 trillion years, and that's just the beginning of it? You're going to be tortured for 30 trillion years? That's not fair either. Mm. And so they started developing the idea that there must be a way to pay for your sins after your death. So you don't have to be, you don't have to suffer forever. When Dante comes along, uh, Dante has inherited this view. Your soul dies, some people go to heaven, some people go to hell, and some people go, and most people go to purgatory. Uh, well, I don't know if it's most, but most people who are eventually going to be in heaven are going to be in purgatory first to pay for their to pay for their sins. And so the Divine Comedy is divided into three parts. Uh, you get the Inferno, and you get the Purgatorio, uh, and and you get the Paradiso. And so it's um, it's the three parts that Roman Catholics continue to subscribe to, uh, even though Protestants tend to think uh, that's either heaven or hell. Right. Thank you so much, Bart. Listeners, I've been speaking with Bart Ehrman, author of the fascinating new book, Heaven and Hell, A History of the Afterlife, published by our friends at Simon & Schuster. We have only scratched the surface of the information available in this book, in this conversation, and I encourage you to order the book at www.quailridgebooks.com, where Heaven and Hell and all of the other books in your purchase will be shipped to you for free. Bart, thank you so much for joining me. Okay, thanks for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Bart Ehrman for joining me. Copies of Heaven and Hell can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping through the month of April. 
I would like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN in the promo code space. That's B-O-O-K-I-N to get three months of audiobooks for the price of one. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking.
My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Booking.